0: That's life,
1: that's That's what all the people say, you're riding high This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Frank Sinatra, his recording of That's Life, and we're going to spend an hour on the life of Frank Sinatra, back on top in June, born this day in history. And what a life it was. He was an American original. Jazz, traditional pop, blues, it was all there. Singer, songwriter, actor, producer, director. He was one of the most popular and influential musical artists of the 20th century. And one of the best-selling music artists of all time. 1,400 recordings. 31 gold, 9 platinum, 3 double platinum, and 1 triple platinum album. He sold more than 150 million records worldwide and appeared in 60 movies. And we're going to spend the next 60 minutes, my goodness, we could spend the next two hours talking about the one and only Francis Albert Sinatra. I
0: can't deny it. I thought of quitting, baby, but my heart just ain't gonna buy it. And if I didn't think it was worth one single try, I'd jump right on a big bird and then I'd fly. I've been a puppet, a pauper, a
1: pile The road leading up to Frank's birth was not paved with yellow bricks. On February 14th, 1914... Dolly and Marty eloped to Jersey City as Dolly's parents refused to host a wedding and did not approve of Marty. He was illiterate, inferior at boxing, and was Sicilian, whereas Dolly's family were from Genoa in northern Italy, the right side of the Italian tracks. The couple eventually moved to Hoboken, New Jersey. My mom and dad grew up minutes away in West New York, New Jersey. Sinatra was given up for dead at birth. The delivery of the 13-pound baby in his parents' New Jersey kitchen on this day in 1915 was traumatic. When he finally emerged, there were no signs of life, so the doctor put him to one side to attend to his mother, Dolly. It was only when the child's grandmother picked up the baby, ran cold water over him, and slapped his back that he started to breathe. This was how... Frank Sinatra's life began. Frank shared this story while speaking at Yale in 1986. As you will hear, he is still filled with appreciation.
2: I was born in 1915 on December 12th, and I weighed uh, 12 and three quarter pounds, and when I was removed from her womb by a midwife, there was a problem. I didn't want to come out of there. <laughs> And uh, they finally, they sent up a flare for a doctor. And upon removing me, I was uh, pretty well damaged at my left side of my neck and ear and face. And my grandmother, uh, who had more sense than anybody in the room, as far as I'm concerned, because she, <laughs> she knew what to do with me. And she stuck me under the ice cold water in a, in a, in a cold water flat. And apparently uh, got some blood moving around, whacked me around a little bit. And uh, I have blessed that day, that moment, in her honor ever since.
1: When Sinatra's mother was a child, her pretty face earned her the nickname Dolly. Energetic and driven, biographers believe that she was the dominant factor in the development of her son's personality traits and extraordinary self-confidence. Here's Frank again.
2: I was the only child, yeah. and, and she was tough on me. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was very strict with me. My yeah. was always strict. She's told me to stay away from the railroad tracks because a kid, one, one time, one day, a kid lost an arm. About three years later, another guy, a little guy, lost his leg. And uh, if she found out that the, I was down there in the railroad tracks, she'd whack me around out of fear, out mm-hmm. of fear. I think the first thing that I was ever conscious of was a drive that she had all the time. Her constant seeking there was to do better. To constantly
1: do better. Do better. When Sinatra was young, being an Italian American was being the object of bigotry. You were part of a minority group, one that was stereotyped as being either comical or absurd the organ grinder with the monkey, or the dangerous and threatening type, the guy with the Tommy gun. And Sinatra, growing up in Hoboken, knew that guy with the Tommy gun was real. In those days, there were sayings. In order to be an attorney or an accountant, you had to be a Jew. In order to be a singer, you had to be an Italian. In order to be a prize fighter, well, you had to be Irish. Which is why Frank's father took the name Marty O'Brien. because Italians were not welcomed in the fight game. Furthermore, Italians were considered lower than the Irish in Hoboken. Marty broke his wrist after 30 professional fights, but his well-connected wife Dolly got him work as a fireman, while still a captain in the fire department, Marty and Dolly opened a tavern during the Prohibition era called, what else, Marty O'Brien's. In 1920, when prohibition of alcohol became law in the United States, Dolly and Marty were allowed to operate openly by local officials who refused to enforce the law. It was in this bar where Frank saw his future. Here's Sinatra.
2: They had in the bar a piano with a, with a roll in it. they put, you put a nickel in it and would play the songs. And uh, occasionally one of the men in the bar would pick me up and put me up in the piano and I'd sing with a roll. And it was a horrendous voice. Terrible. I mean, it was like a siren. You know, honest and truly, I'm in love with you. Way up there like that. It's a wonder I ever got anywhere. Starting that way is what kills me. So one day I got a nickel or a dime, whatever it was, and I said, this is the racket. This is what you got to be doing.
1: This is what you got to be doing. And when we come back, you're going to hear more about this extraordinary life, the many contours, detours, ups and downs, because it was not all up. My goodness, there were probably more downs, and you won't believe them, and he always came back. And always, always, there was that, well, there was that loneliness. And we're going to dig into that loneliness when we come back. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories for the hour. The life of Frank Sinatra.
0: Of me. So deep in my heart that you're really a part of me. I've got you. Under my skin I tried so Not to give in I've said to myself This affair Come fly with me Let's fly, let's fly away if you can use some exotic booze There's a bar in Far Bombay Come on and fly with me Let's fly, let's fly away
1: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and for the hour we're talking about the life of Frank Sinatra and we left off at that bar, his dad's bar and it turns out Frank was not only attracted to acting but all of the performance arts
2: I don't know have the About six movie theaters, really one mile square. And every time I saw somebody, I wanted to be them. I wanted to be a a ventriloquist. Then I saw jugglers and all that kind of stuff. But I was still thinking about singing. I never lost that thing about singing back here. And um, I went to see performers. I mean, not anybody famous until I saw Bing.
1: Until he saw Bing, and that's Bing Crosby, of course. And Crosby was the first great pop singer in America and the first white singer to completely internalize the innovations of jazz, which he got directly from the great Louis Armstrong. Sinatra, who idolized Bing, decided to become a singer. He said, quote, That's exactly what I want to do. I want to be like that. Here's a very young Frank, sounding more like Bing than what we've come to know as old blue eyes. But one thing's indisputable. He had immeasurable potential, and his peers noticed.
0: I like New York
1: in June.
0: How about you? I like a Gershwin tune. How about you? I started singing more in
2: school with the uh, dancers on Friday nights. Every other Friday night, we had to dance in the gymnasium. People would say to me, hey, you're pretty good. And that began to register in my
0: head.
1: Frank's mom took notice, too, although she was not so receptive.
3: Well, I first discovered it when he didn't want to go to school anymore, outside of uh, just going into these glee clubs all the time. Uh How
2: old was he at the time?
3: At the time, he was about 16. Uh And uh, naturally, the principal sent for me and said he was just taking up space.
1: Taking up space, well, Frank decided to drop out of high school, and here's Frank on the resulting family crisis.
2: Oh, it was disastrous. Absolutely disastrous. My dad, you know, who never had too much of a formal education, was terribly disappointed. He he just couldn't understand it. I pleaded with him. I said, you've got to give me a chance to, to, to work on what I want to do. And he said uh, something about, uh, your chance, a chance, he said. Ten years from now, he said, you'll still be looking for chance. You'll be a bum, he said.
1: You'll be a bum, he said. By the way, how many dads have said, said that to their kids and it didn't work out? It was 1936, and Frank's singing career was going nowhere. His father's bum prophecy was beginning... To become a reality here's frank on his father's response
2: he at this particular morning said to me uh, uh, why don't you just get out of the house and go out on your own is really what he said You know, get out and uh i think the egg was stuck in here for about 20 <laughs> minutes i couldn't swallow it or get rid of it anyway my mother of course was nearly in tears and uh, But but we agreed that it might be a good thing, and then I packed up a small case that I had, and I came to New York.
1: As a young man in New Jersey, New York might as well have been Oz. And this is hard to understand, folks. I know that part of New Jersey. And it's right there on the Hudson River, directly across from Manhattan. I mean, the Empire State Building, you can see from the piers and docks of Hoboken. But these kids, these working-class kids, didn't think that was their city. The magic city that he looked at from just a few thousand feet across the way just wasn't his home. But Frank's move to the Big Apple offered nothing but dead ends, so the prodigal son attempted to move back home with his parents. How did his father respond? Well, here's Frank.
2: About that point was the Christmas that came that I went home, and I thought my old man was on 24-hour shift, but I had the days screwed up. He was off 24 hours, and he was at home. And I brought two presents over to leave them there, because he didn't speak to me for a long time. He didn't talk to me. And uh, he met me at the door. And, uh, of course, it was a great homecoming. He started to cry, and I was teary, and it was just marvelous.
1: But Frank couldn't stop pursuing his passion.
2: Several months after the Christmas incident, a musician friend of mine told me there was a joint called A Rustic Cabin, and they were forming a new band, and they were looking for a boy singer. I went up and auditioned in Englewood Cliffs up near the George Washington Bridge. Got the job at the Rustic Cabin. Shortly after that, we got word that the WNEW dance parade was going to pick up the Rustic Cabin every night of the week, 11 to 11.15 or 11.15 to 11.30, whatever it was.
1: Frank earned a measly $15 a week at the Rustic Cabin, but his father began to see the fruits of his son's passion.
2: Suddenly, uh, my dad he became the proudest man in the world. You know, he, he couldn't wait to tell anybody, everybody or anybody that I was on a 15-minute dance remote program from New Jersey in some roadhouse somewhere, you know. And they'd all sit around the radio and listen at 11 o'clock at night for 15 minutes. And in those days, I couldn't sing my way out of a paper bag, but they thought it was a big star, you know. Anybody got on the radio in the early days of radio was a very big
1: star. You bet. Well, Sinatra never formally learned how to read music, He had a fine, natural understanding of it. And he worked very hard from a young age to improve his abilities in all aspects of music, even while he was earning some success. On his night off, Frank would take his girlfriend Nancy out on dates. Actually, it wasn't technically a date. It was a business. Frank would use his one night off to see people in the music business. Here's Frank on one of those nights that yielded a huge payoff.
2: That's when I ran into uh, one of the men in the music business said to me, uh, listen, he said, why don't you take some lessons? And I said, what kind of lessons? He said, vocal lessons. He said, you know, guys do that. I said, well, uh, where do you find these guys? He said, there's a guy up over the brass rail, which he said, the restaurant. He said, his name is Quinlan. He said, he's an old drunk. He said, he used to be at the Met and he got kicked out of the Met. And he said, you ought to go up and talk to him. So I went up and he was surly. I think he was hungover anyway, he said that who are you and how long have you been singing and uh, why do you want to be a singer and all that kind of stuff. I said, well, I'd like, I'd like to be a singer because I feel that uh, I have an idea about singing. Oh, he said, you already got an idea. He said, why do, we, why do you need me? I said, no, what I mean is I just need some direction. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do. If you can handle $3 a week, he said, I'll give you three lessons a week. And I started three lessons a week. And I couldn't wait to get there every, every time I had a lesson. I couldn't wait because I knew that I was learning something. He was teaching me the proper way to sing. I still use the same exercises, and then I developed some of my own.
1: Thanks to those bedrock vocal lessons from that drunk John Quinlan, Frank's rocket began hearing a countdown.
2: Now I was on the air twice, once at night and one in the morning. And I got fan mail. And I'd get little postcards, two postcards, three postcards, and girls would write to me, you know, penny postcards. And I'd go and look in there right away and see if I how much mad did it get any bigger. It never got any bigger. People began to hear me. And they were saying, Jesus, you're getting better. You really, we see the difference So oh, what's no. happening.
1: It was 1939. Frank was 25. He just married Nancy, left the Rustic Cabin to play with the world-famous Tommy Dorsey band. Here's Joe Stafford, who was a backup singer in Dorsey's band. We were just
4: sitting on the bandstand when Tommy announced this new singer out on the stage, walked this very skinny, unprepossessing looking young man, and I thought,
0: wow. Sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely nights
4: dreaming. He sang about eight bars. And that whole theater became so quiet, you could have heard a pin drop, you just knew that you were hearing something.
1: And on the back end of this, we're going to get into the the guts of Sinatra's career, the way he got under a song, the way he got under the skin of a song. This is Lee Habib again, Our American Stories. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org. And catch all of our stories. We'll be back right after this.
0: What good would common sense for it do? Cause it's witchcraft Wicked witchcraft And although I know it's strictly time. the mississippi here we all work while the rich folk play pulling their boats from the dawn till sunset getting no rest until the judgment day
1: this is lee habib and this is our american stories you're listening to frank sinatra singing the great jerome kern and oscar hammerstein old man river from showboat When we picked off, we found out he had just gotten a gig with Tommy Dorsey, and Dorsey gave Frank one of the biggest platforms to stand on in the entire music business. But as multi-Grammy and Academy Award-winning songwriter extraordinaire Sammy Kahn and Frank himself disclose, it's this, that Dorsey gave Frank something even bigger than a gig, something that would shake Sinatra's iconic vocalizations. Tommy Dorsey had this incredible incredible breath control
5: without breathing I guess
2: I watched him and I could never see him breathe 16 bars at a time I wonder how he does that if you can visualize, a trombone player holds the mouthpiece. He was breathing in the corner of his mouth. And that was my theory. Do not break a phrase if you can do that. And keep the audience listening for the rest of the phrase.
1: Here's music critic John Lahr on Sinatra applying the breath control he learned from Dorsey. He would be able to sing four lines of that song. There was a seamlessness, a
4: smoothness, and not one person is looking at anybody else. They are
6: completely under the spell of Sinatra's story. I will you
0: my stardust melody, the memory of love's
1: refrain After this, Frank's career took off. Sinatra mania was in full effect. He signed with Columbia Records in 1943 and was one of the most recognized men in the country. Frank had his struggles, though. He divorced Nancy, got remarried in 1951 to actress, bombshell, Ava Gardner. But Shortly after his marriage to Ava, Frank's singing career began to stall. His marriage was failing, and his popularity it was crashing. Frank took to the bottle. Here's Sinatra himself recalling a, recalling a remorseful New York City night.
2: I became an out-and-out out drunk. I mean, I was bombed all the time. So God bless Tootsies. I never paid a damn for Tootsies.
0: Drink up, drink up, all you people.
2: So at 4 o'clock, of course, this night, he ain't Dago. He said, you better go home. Order. Now, he was on 52nd Street. I was staying at Jimmy's 57th Street. I walked out, and it was like 20 degrees.
0: Have fun.
2: So I started walking, and i walking, walking. Suddenly, I don't know where the hell I am, because the booze really hit me. It really hit me like a sledgehammer. And the next thing I knew, there was a flashlight in my eye, and somebody was shaking. And the life's on. You're going to have to get out of here. Come on, get up. And the cop grabbed my arm, and then he looked at me. You You Sinatra?
1: The cop was not the only one to witness Frank's drunken distress. Here's Frank's closest friend, Sammy Davis Jr. I
2: was in somebody's car in New York. We stopped our light, and I saw him coming past the Capitol like this. Walking down the street, co-collar, a hat, and was alone. It was the first time I'd ever seen him alone. And nobody was stopping him, and nobody was doing, Jesus And nobody
1: cared.
7: And nobody cared.
1: Frank hit rock bottom. It was 1953. And a film about the attack on Pearl Harbor called From Here to Eternity was being cast. Starring acting legends Burt Lancaster, Donna Reed, and Montgomery Clift. Frank lobbied hard for the part.
2: I spoke to uh, Harry Cohn, who was then the head of Columbia Pictures. And uh, I said, I'd like to play that. He said, well, He said, you've never done a dramatic role. You're a guy a sing and dance with Gene Kelly. And I said... But that's the kind of thing I think I can do.
1: Ironically, it was his rocky marriage to Ava that got him the part. Here, Frank's daughter, Tina, daughters, Tina and Nancy Sinatra Jr., detail the phone call Ava made to the contentious president of Columbia Pictures, Harry Cohn.
4: Their marriage was not going swimmingly, but he had to get back on his feet. She knew that better than anybody. She placed the call to Harry
3: and said, You know who should play Maggio, don't you? That son of a husband of mine. (laughs) It's pretty funny, yeah.
1: (laughs) It worked. They tested Sinatra and he got the part. It was perfect for him. All he had to do was make the audience laugh and cry at the same time. A very hard task for the most seasoned actor, but a skill Frank had been successful with throughout his singing career. But this was acting, not singing. The execution was completely different. Like he had done in the past... Frank went looking for direction. He got it from the director of the picture, Fred Zinneman. Here's Frank.
2: And one time in Honolulu with Freddy, I said, there must be something missing in my script. It went from scene number 162 to 164. And he said, well, do something, you know. What would a drunk do at the bar? And I said, well, drunks do a lot of things at bars." bar. bar's there whiskey. Large whiskey. Excuse me. Hey, buddy. Sam. Hey, coming out, fellas, the Terry Gimbel's basement. Stand back there now. Here we go. Seven for daddy. Five deuce. E-seven.
1: Snake eyes.
0: That's the story of my
8: life.
1: <laughs> Frank got paid a pathetic 8000 for eight weeks' worth of work. It didn't matter to him. He was as hungry as ever, and his passion showed up on the big screen.
2: I think what made people enjoy it and like it It was my inner love for doing it and wanting it and needing it so badly. On March 25th,
1: 1954, Frank was nominated for his role in From Here to Eternity with an Oscar. They opened the envelope and...
4: The winner is Frank Sinatra.
1: <laughs> Frank was back on top again. But what he did immediately after receiving his Oscar is far from the usual all-night celebrating. Here's Frank's daughter, Tina Sinatra.
4: I think that everybody was disappointed there wasn't some extended celebration. He wanted to be with himself. He said, I just went home, parked the car, and I walked.
1: I walked. Now, this is not terribly surprising. After all, Frank was the poet laureate of loneliness. His songs were haunted by it, and for all of his fame... Frank loved solitude. Frank and Ava soon divorced, and a few years later, he wed a young actress named Mia Farrow. He or she is offering a very unique look into the man, his persona, and his music.
3: The way I saw it, there was this person that was so, so shy. You can see it in pictures sometimes when you see him looking at me. We were both shy people. So there was this Frank, and then there was another version. In Las Vegas, these people who would show up, I didn't know them from anywhere else, and they came and they called women broads. They only related to each other, the men. They told jokes and they drank and they gambled. And I, and I did meet mafia people. If the evening went on late enough, he might just say, let's go to London. And he would call his pilot, and next thing we'd be in an airplane. I learned to bring my passport to dinner. Before he made a record, or before he opened in Las Vegas, he would stop smoking for six weeks, and... He wouldn't drink, he wouldn't smoke. I remember he, him telling me that he would never sing um, songs that were popular at the time, What Kind of Fool Am I? And he said, I would never sing that song. He said, because uh, I, ca- I can't sing what I can't feel.
1: I can't sing what I can't feel. That's part of the reason we were attracted to Frank, I think. His voice was always confiding something. He wasn't busy emoting. He was busy connecting. And this gives his voice its extraordinary sympathy and relatability. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we can come back more with Frank Sinatra.
2: Can we make one?
0: It was a very good year It was a very good year For small-town girls
1: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we're spending the hour on Frank Sinatra, And you're listening to him singing one of the great on Capitol recordings, it was a very good year.
0: When I was 17,
1: and like most of the singers we hear on the radio, Frank was confessing to us. And this always gave his voice extraordinary sympathy and relatability. He sounds the way you would sound if you could speak the things you feel. If you dared to.
0: It was a very good year. It was a very good year for city girls who lived up the stair With all that perfumed hair. And it came undone.
1: On January 24th, 1969, Frank lost his father. Like many Americans, Frank had been silently strong through the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, his brother Bobby, and then Martin Luther King. When his father died, something in Sinatra snapped. Here he is sharing a story about his father who struggled to share how proud he really was of his son While literally behind closed doors, his father was beaming with pride for his son.
2: My father loved me, if possible, more than my mother, but he never showed. He never wanted to to open up with me. He was a terrible introvert. For instance, I went to the firehouse when I appeared at the Paramount. I said, my dad around, he said, "Uh, we think he's upstairs. When I came up, he was standing in front of the door of the locker, shaving. As I approached him, he apparently saw me and slammed the door. But I had already seen in the mirror. This thing was full of clippings that he had been saving, or had guys cut out of magazines them to cut them out of magazines and save them for him. Downbeat and metronome and newspaper clippings.
0: Won't you tell her, please, to put on speed? I could have when I saw speed. it. Follow my lead.
2: Oh, he loved my success, but he, but he never mentioned it. We never talk about it. In
1: 1978, Frank turned one more song into a standard with New York, New York. Sinatra actually had two hits called New York, New York. The first was in 1949 from the film On the Town and was written by Leonard Bernstein. Thirty years later, Sinatra cut the theme for Martin Scorsese's 1977 theatrical bomb, New York, New York, but Sinatra turned it into his signature song and his onstage closer. He also angered the lyricist by customizing the words, adding the climactic phrase, A number one. Here it is.
0: I want to wake up in a city that never sleeps.
1: You almost can't cut it there, can you? (laughs) Here's culture critic Terry Teachout on the significance of this song. What is touching about it is this is a man who in his youth looked across the river and saw his dreams. And now in his late middle
7: age, in his old age, he sings a song about having achieved those dreams.
1: Radio host Jonathan Schwartz was at Radio City Music Hall For Sinatra's first public performance of New York, New York, here's what he saw. I was present at the very first moment that he sang it publicly.
7: It was during the Yankee Dodger World Series of 78, and he was playing Radio City, opening night. He turns to the conductor and says, what's the first line? He said, start spreading the news.
0: Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it. New York, New York.
1: Frank had successfully arrived at Oz. And Oz, of course, being that big city right across the river, right across the Hudson River, New York City. And what got him there, in the end, it's that ability to get under the skin of a lyric and to relate To the ordinary everyday American And particularly to the lost To the lonely And to the loser Here's an intro to the great Hoagy Carmichael song I Get Along Without You Very Well I think it says it all
2: We shall call this next segment Songs for Losers These are songs of unrequited love girls running away from home and all that kind of jazz.
0: I get along without you
1: very well. And when Frank got to Oz, what he saw behind the curtain, well, we do not know. One thing seems apparent. Frank found meaning, pleasure, and deep satisfaction by touching those who listened to his music. In a 1963 Playboy interview, Frank said this, quote, Whatever else has been said about me personally is unimportant. When I sing, I believe. I'm honest. If you want to get an audience with you, there's only one way. You have to reach out to them with total honesty and humility. This isn't a grandstand play on my part. I've discovered, and you can see it in other entertainers. When they don't reach out to the audience, nothing happens. You can be the most artistically perfect performer in the world, but an audience is like a woman. If you're indifferent, endsville. That goes for any kind of human contact. A politician, on television, an actor in the movies, or a guy and a gal. That's as true in life as it is in art. Well, we're going to close out with the group's favorite here at Our American Stories. The one that we think represents and manifests what we just read so well. The great Harold Orlin and Johnny Mercer song, One for My Baby and One More for the Road.
0: To the end Of a brief episode Make it one For my babe And one more For the road I got the routine Put another nickel in the machine. Feeling so bad. Can't you make the music easy and sad? I could tell you a lot. But you've got to be true to your code. Just make it one for my baby, and one more for the road. You'd never know it, but Buddy, I'm a kind of poet
1: And I got a lot of things
0: I'd like to say
1: Frank Sinatra's favorite toast was May you live to be a hundred and, and may I the last me, voice you hear be mine He didn't make it to a hundred But the business of Frank Sinatra is still going strong All you need to do is listen His voice is still heard in restaurants, bars, airports and other public spaces all over the world. Frank has solidified, as recordings continue to prove nearly two decades after his death at 82, that he is one of the most recognizable voices in history. It was, after all, why they called him The Voice. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Francis Albert Sinatra.
9: But
0: this torch That I found It's gotta be drowned Or it soon Might explode So make it one For my baby And one more For the road The long It's so long the long
4: very
1: Our American stories. The first state to recognize Christmas as a holiday was Louisiana in 1837. By 1860, only 13 states recognized Christmas as a legal holiday. Five years later, by 1865, that number had gone from 13 to 31. What happened? The Civil War happened. The nostalgic yearning for Christmas at home during the war happened. What also happened were the little gestures that occurred on the battlefield during unofficial Christmas truces between the blue and the gray. So after the war, one of the ways President Lincoln saw to reconcile the nation was through Christmas. In 1870, Christmas was made a national holiday. Let's now take a look and see what's under the hood of this story. Sleigh bells ring,
5: are you listening?
6: Ah, Christmas. Up goes the tree, on go the lights. An exciting season of presents and parties only a Scrooge could hate. But where did all the traditions start? Why do we bring huge evergreen trees into our homes? How did Santa get the red suit, the sleigh, and the eight reindeer? And what about Rudolph? Today we are going to pull back the curtain to unveil the hidden history of our cherished Christmas holiday. These days cities and towns seem to be dressing up earlier and earlier for the Christmas season. There are Santas at every shopping mall from coast to coast and there are lights. Lots and lots of lights. We like lights. As little kids I think we all jumped in the family car and drove through different neighborhoods to see the lights. The first Christmas lights were invented in 1882 by Edison Company Vice-President Edward Johnson. Later, General Electric offered a string of 24 bulbs for $12, which is equal to $280 today. This bright idea is often credited to a New England telephone
5: worker. The real inspiration came from his job where he worked for the telephone company, and it was, you know, the little light bulbs in the early telephone switchboards. That gave him the idea for what we now know as Christmas lights.
6: The Christmas story is one we all know. After a rude refusal by a local innkeeper, Mary and Joseph bedded down in a barn in Bethlehem, where they gave birth to a son, the Son of God. Those are the biblical origins of Christmas, But centuries before Jesus walked the earth, early Europeans were celebrating light and birth in the darkest days of winter. Every December on the shortest day in the year, when the earth was tilted furthest from the sun, came the winter solstice. It marked the darkest day of the year, but also the time when the promise of longer days gave cause to celebrate. To honor the occasion, ancient Norse tribes held a 12-day festival they called Yule.
4: You have the crops brought in, you have the meat being slaughtered, you slaughter some of the farm animals because you can't feed them during the dark days of winter. So there's a lot of meat on hand, the beer has been made, it's perfect time for a feast.
6: Fathers and sons dragged home the biggest log they could find and set it on fire. This Yule log burned for all 12 days of the feast and they brought evergreens, firs, and holly into their homes. Over the centuries, the concept grew, and later it was co-opted into our modern Christmas tree custom. Today, picking out a tree is a family tradition. And in any given year, American farmers are growing 350 million trees on 15,000 Christmas tree farms. That's one Christmas tree for every man, woman, and child in the country. Here's Nigel Manley, director of the Rox Estate Christmas Tree Farm in Bethlehem, New Hampshire.
5: The biggest thing that I've heard from customers is, particularly with the balsam fir, when you
9: open the door when you come home from work, you can smell that tree in the house. And that scent is what makes Christmas for them. That's the biggest thing for the Christmas trees.
6: So what does any of this have to do with the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago? After all. That is where the story of Christmas all begins. But how do we know what we know about the birth of Jesus?
8: We actually have two different sources from the New Testament for the Nativity. We have the Gospel of Matthew, and we have the Gospel of Luke. They don't refer to one another, they may not even have known about each other, and they tell us two different sets of things about what happened for Jesus' birth. And what we tend to do is we put these two stories together to get a kind of full picture that we call the Nativity.
6: Matthew's Gospel gives us the star of Bethlehem and the wise men. And no, contrary to popular belief, there were not three of the wise men. The Bible only mentions that they brought three gifts for the baby Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the exact number of wise men is not included in the scriptures.
8: There's a kind of symbolic value to these gifts. What they're doing is they're bringing really, really precious goods to honor this child with a very humble birth. And there's a a message there about how we need to recognize this birth isn't really humble at all because this is a king being born.
6: This is the first example of Christmas gift-giving. But nowhere in the New Testament is it recorded when this birth actually happened. One of the few things that all scholars seem to agree on is that Jesus wasn't born in the wintertime. Now I know that's a terrible thing to say, but let me explain. The early followers of Jesus Christ weren't concerned with marking His birthday, partially because they expected His imminent return. So why bother creating a birthday? But this didn't prevent early Christian scholars and present-day historians from trying to speculate when He was born. The one thing you will get from their estimates on Christ's birth is that they all occur in the springtime. And that makes a great deal of sense because one of the few details you'll find in the Gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ is that it was at a time when the shepherds were with their flocks in the fields. That could not have been in December because what we do know about the traditions of ancient Judea is that at that time shepherds took their flocks indoors so they wouldn't get cold at night, starting in November, and they wouldn't bring them back out again until March so how did jesus end up with a birthday on december 25th long before jesus was born the romans celebrated many pagan holidays particularly in december and these end of year festivities set the stage for our modern christmas holiday
5: one roman holiday was saturnalia which began on december 17th and was a series of parties that would last anywhere from three to five or maybe seven days you can think of it as sort of a a big office party, but in togas.
6: And only three laws governed Romans during the holiday. Number one, all businesses should be closed except bakeries, cookeries, and those that tend to sport and solace and delight. Number two, anger, resentment, and threats are strictly forbidden. Number three, no discourse shall either be composed or delivered except it be witty and lusty, conducing to mirth and jollity.
1: The second party is New Year's. It was a five-day party and it was quite enjoyable as well. And then in between Saturnalia and New Year's there was already a birthday celebration for a Roman-related God on December 25th. That
6: God, Mithras, was born and honored on December 25th. After Christianity became Rome's official religion in the 4th century, leaders chose to absorb pagan traditions rather than outlaw them. But in a prelude to those who complain today about what a shame it is that we don't celebrate Christmas the way they used to, that Christmas has been commercialized. Well, 16 centuries ago, Archbishop Gregory of Constantinople urged that the Christmas celebration be conducted after a heavenly and not an earthly manner, and he warned his congregants against feasting to excess, dancing, and crowning the doors. But as the church continued to absorb various ancient traditions, what emerged were two experiences of Christmas, one sacred and one secular. Each of these Christmases also had their own separate music just like we have today.
8: You have hymns in the church, they're sacred music, and they're sung in Latin, and you find gradually the development in the 12th century of Christmas carols, and Christmas carols are sung in the vernacular, they're not in Latin, they're languages everybody knows, and people enjoy these songs, and people sing them together, and very quickly there gets to be the tradition of not singing these songs in church.
6: But medieval caroling was not just about caroling, it was about drinking. At every door, revelers begged for a gulp from the household punch bowl, getting drunker with every note they sang.
8: So what Christmas looks like doesn't look an awful lot like a sort of solemn, biblically oriented holiday. It looks like something else. It looks like it's always looked, frankly, it's this kind of festival of celebration and revelry.
6: All of this celebration and merriment didn't sit well, especially after the Protestant Reformation. One of the hallmarks of Martin Luther's message was to clear away from the entire church calendar all the feasts and saints' days. And Christmas was one of the many feast days in the Catholic Church, and Luther tried to get rid of almost all of them. But there were just too many people who enjoyed St. Nick's December 6th feast day. Besides feasting, This day also involved gift-giving. So what Martin Luther suggested was this. Instead of telling kids about Saint Nicholas bringing gifts, they would tell the kids that the gifts were brought by the Christ child himself. How do you say Christ child in Luther's German language? Christkindl. That's right, Christkindl. Well, Luther's attempts failed. But Christkindl got swallowed up by Christmas and got transformed into Kris Kringle. Yet another endearing name for the big man in the red suit. So why did Luther declare a war on Christmas? He did because it wasn't mentioned in the Bible. One of the messages of the Reformation was go back to the Bible. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Part of the logic behind that argument was expressed by an American Puritan of a later generation, Ezra Stiles who was one of the first presidents of Yale College, who said this, had it been the will of Christ that the anniversary of his nativity should have been celebrated, he would have at least let us know the day. By the 17th century, Christian reformers were losing patience with the rowdier Christmas traditions. They decided to ban Christmas altogether.
8: There's a kind of backlash against Christmas. Among Protestant groups, you find a desire to not celebrate Christmas a repudiation of Christmas as kind of a Catholic invention, frankly, something that the Catholic Church had allowed happen. In
6: 1652, England banned Christmas. Ministers who preached about the Nativity on Christmas Day could be imprisoned. Churches risked fines if they tried to decorate their buildings. The law said that shops must stay open on Christmas as if it were any other business day. Now this was the law, but nobody said it was popular. Although people believed the Puritans had a lot of religious substance on their side, they enjoyed Christmas. But Christmas would have an equally hard time in New England during the early 17th century. Pious settlers from England looked upon Christmas with suspicion. The newly formed Puritan colony of Massachusetts wanted no part of the holiday, and in 1659, it banned Christmas too.
4: The Puritans of New England were very well aware of the pagan associations with the celebrations of the winter solstice, and they wished to avoid any kind of association with that. One Puritan commentator said that Christmas was chastity's shipwreck. And another one in Boston said that men did more dishonor to Christ on the 12 days of Christmas than they did the entire 12 months of the year.
6: During the Revolutionary War, America had still not yet embraced Christmas, which in one instance was a blessing. One of the key and most inspiring battles of the Revolution was the Battle of Trenton. This battle has been immortalized in the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware River as he boldly stands at the front of the boat next to an American flag. Washington made that crossing on Christmas of 1776. One of the primary reasons that the Americans were able to prevail was because they surprised the Hessians, the German mercenaries who worked for the British, and the British at Trenton, New Jersey, because they were all drunk. They had been celebrating Christmas, but the Americans did not. As the American colonies spread down throughout the southern coast, the settlers were less enthusiastic about banning Christmas because a great many of them were Catholic immigrants. And once Protestants got exposed to Christmas, they found it very attractive. By the mid-1700s, they had adopted many of their European Christmas traditions, keeping the rowdy Christmas behavior of the past alive.
9: Early Republic records are full of instances where people in you know, a gentleman's home in Virginia, they're having a nice Christmas dinner. When the local rowdies get word of it and pound on the door, and they go through this very ancient ritual of, give us some food and drink, or we're gonna throw rocks through your windows. And so there's, both those traditions are, are still there.
6: But as America matured, so did its Christmas customs.
9: Respectable, middle-class Americans wanted
5: to take the rowdy Christmas, the public Christmas that took place outdoors, and move it indoors. I and mean, these are people who had property. They were afraid of destruction. They were afraid of losing things that they owned. So they want to take this public rowdy event and take it from the streets and bring it into the home and make the focus of Christmas around the family, around this private gathering that takes place in the house.
6: This effort was most deliberate and most successful in rapidly expanding New York City. The city that never sleeps has shaped the modern secular Christmas more than any other city in the world and it's really because of the efforts of two very gifted New Yorkers who lived there in the eighteen hundreds they would reinvent old-world Christmas customs to create our modern American holiday and they would mold our image of jolly old Saint Nick
5: New York in the 1800s was a city that was alive with change. The population was booming. There was new industry. There were the new stores that were growing up that provided the foundation for what became the commercialization of Christmas. But it was not only a city that was alive with change, it was also a city that was alive with new ideas.
6: Clement Clark Moore, a New York professor of Oriental and Greek literature, who helped create New York's Chelsea neighborhood, and designed St. Peter's Episcopal Church, had an idea that would change Christmas forever. In 1822, he wrote a 56-line poem he called A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known today as The Night Before Christmas. Almost single-handedly he created the modern American version of Christmas.
4: What's really interesting about Moore's poem is it distilled various traditions in the early 19th century and put them all together and added his own, Moore's own imaginings. Moore's poem becomes a path-breaking moment, a watershed, in how Christmas is celebrated.
6: Moore's subject was Santa, as we know him today. His inspiration? Two legendary Christmas figures of the Old World. One was Saint Nicholas, a 4th century bishop renowned for gift-giving, legendary for leaving presents in stockings. The other was Sinterklaas, the Dutch version of Saint Nicholas. Sinterklaas had merged a bit with Odin, the Norse pagan god of Yule, who flew through the sky on an eight-legged horse
9: before the mid-19th century. Santa Claus comes in different shapes and sizes. He arrives, you know, on a boat, on a horse, uh, on a sleigh, and all of that sort of codified and narrowed down in America, largely in New York City.
6: Both Old World legends were rich in details, many of which Moore chose to leave out. One omission was a bizarre, dark, devil-like sidekick of St. Nicholas named Krampus, or Black Peter. And Krampus brought a switch to punish naughty children, or worse.
10: He had horns, long red tongue, covered with fur, tail and hoof. And he would come into the room right after St. Nicholas. And one scene in particular shows two little boys cowering. Because outside the door is this devil figure, Krampus.
6: But Clement Clark Moore St. Nick embodied only good. Moore introduced several new characteristics for Santa. He dressed him in American fur, gave him a pipe, a huge belt, and portrayed him not as a priest, but a jolly dimpled elf with a twinkle in his eye. On his back, he toted a sack full of toys for the children of the house. Moore also gave him a sleigh that he flew through the sky. Led not by a horse, but by eight reindeer.
2: But a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer.
6: (laughs) Each with its own name. Now Dasher,
10: now Dancer, now Prancer and
6: Vixen. On Comet, on Cupid, on Dunder and Blitzen. Moore's poem, which has become the most famous poem in the English language, enthralled 19th century Americans. It created a new kind of Christmas, neither rowdy nor religious, but centered on home and family. In the decades that followed, artists would expand on Moore's imagery, but his would be the vision that would endure.
5: One interesting thing about the poem is that book editors actually changed the last line. In Moore's original version it was happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. Most books change happy to merry.
6: As iconic as Clement Clark Moore's Santa was, he still wasn't the fully formed Kris Kringle we know today. His Santa had no North Pole workshop, no elves, no letters from kids, and no naughty and nice list. Where did these details come from? The credit goes to another New Yorker, illustrator Thomas Nast. He took more Santa and produced the definitive version for generations to come.
5: Thomas Nast is one of the great illustrators of the 19th century. A lot of the images that we see today, he created. When you think about you know, the donkey and the elephant for the Democratic and Republican party, he created it. The image of Uncle Sam, that we've all come to know, is a creation of Thomas Nast. And he also is the person who gave us our modern version of Santa Claus. In
6: 1862, one of America's major magazines, Harper's Weekly, commissioned Nast to draw its Christmas illustrations. He transformed the Moore's jolly old elf into someone taller and grander.
9: So he becomes your grandfather, gives him the full flowing white beard, which is the image of a wealthy person in in the Victorian uh, world. Um, He was wearing a red coat with white trim, black boots, the buckled belt, the pipe.
6: Nass' image of Santa became indelible and with every Christmas grew richer in its detail. Santa, one could say, has become America's national saint
9: nass does this year after year he creates lots of the things we associate with santa claus the list of naughty and nice living at the north pole and that becomes the image of santa claus and by the mid-19th century the christmas tree
6: a variation of the ancient norse custom became the centerpiece to the family-oriented american christmas all because of one picture on december 23rd 1848 the london news published an image of the young queen victoria and prince albert with their family assembled around a christmas tree part of albert's german tradition england fell in love with it immediately
9: two years later this same image of queen victoria and prince albert was republished in a very popular american magazine with a couple of alterations they took out queen victoria's crown and took off prince albert's mustache so that they looked a little bit more american and it was a way of sort of essentially telling middle-class americans who bought this magazine that this would be a tradition this is a tradition worthy of your home
6: the christmas tree had officially arrived in america by 1856 president franklin pierce was putting one in the white house in 1939 Copywriter Robert L. May was creating a whole new holiday icon, a red-nosed reindeer named Rudolph.
9: The Rudolph figure is created for Montgomery Ward Department Store in Chicago. and They want to have essentially kind of a handout, a Christmas favor, if you will. So he writes a 38-page pamphlet in, in verse about this woebegone reindeer. It originally calls him Rolo the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Towards the end, they decide they need something a little more punch, so it becomes Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And it's a huge hit. Ten years later, in
6: 1949, May's brother-in-law, songwriter Johnny Marks, set the Rudolph poem to music.
7: He wrote the song and gave it to Gene Autry, and Gene Autry didn't like it. He didn't even want to record it. And Gene Autry's wife said, no, this is a good song. You need to record it.
0: You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen. But do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? Rudolph the Red-Nosed
6: Reindeer Autry finally agreed to record the song, but only as a B-side to one of his records. It became the biggest hit of Autry's career. Another classic Christmas song from around the same time was written by a Jewish immigrant from Russia. Irving Berlin and sung by Bing Crosby This Christmas song is the most beloved and celebrated song ever written It's a song that was heard for the very first time on Christmas 1941 Just 18 days after Pearl Harbor was bombed The song is White Christmas
0: I'm dreaming of a white
9: Just like the one so the song doesn't really catch on. It's the spring of 1942. We've just gone to war, but it catches on in the fall of 42, which is when America is really approaching its one-year mark of being at war, and these now hundreds of thousands, soon to be millions of GIs are going to be spending their first Christmas away from home. And that's where that song has that real heartstring pulling nostalgic feel to it, that the record sales just skyrocket in October, November, December of uh, 1942.
6: White Christmas is the most successful single ever released, and it has been for more than 60 years. According to the Guinness World Records, the version sung by Bing Crosby is the best-selling single of all time, with estimated sales in excess of 100 million copies worldwide. The homespun values at the heart of White Christmas were what Americans at home and those fighting abroad longed for. In 1946, Americans found those values in the reigning classic of all Christmas-themed movies, It's a Wonderful Life.
1: It's Wonderful Life started life uh, as a short story called The Greatest Gift by uh, Philip Van Doren Stern, and it wound up in the hands of Frank Capra, who had just come back from World War II, uh, where he had shot the Why We Fight series of, of propaganda films for the U.S. Army.
6: The Oscar-winning director crafted a sentimental masterpiece about a man named George Bailey. A man who sees the world as it would be had he never been born.
3: Mother, what do you want? Mother, this is
5: George.
7: I I thought sure you'd remember him
6: the impact this movie has had on the movie industry can be seen in every Steven Spielberg film for inspiration Spielberg has said that he watches it's a wonderful life before starting any new film and whenever he goes on location for a new film he takes along a copy of it's a wonderful life to show his cast how movies should be made and it also must be said the kiss between Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed is hands down the greatest kiss in movie-making history.
10: Now you listen to me. I don't want any plastics. I don't want any
5: ground floors and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that?
7: I want to do what I want to do and you're... and
4: you're... George, George, George.
6: The broadcast success of It's a Wonderful Life proved that Christmas and television were a powerful combination. By the 1960s, baby boomers were enjoying a golden age of holiday TV.
8: There was a golden age of Christmas specials that began about in the mid-60s and went into the mid-70s. These specials were aimed specifically at children, although were sophisticated enough to entertain the adults that were in the room.
6: After Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol in 1962 came a flurry of animated specials But in 1965, one Christmas special featuring a little round-headed kid seeking the true meaning of Christmas topped them all. Here's Lee Mendelson, the executive producer for A Charlie Brown Christmas. In
7: 1965, we got a call from the McCann Erickson advertising agency who represented Coca-Cola. They said, have you and Mr. Schultz ever thought of doing a Charlie Brown Christmas show? And I lied and said, absolutely. So I called uh, Sparky, our nickname for Mr. Schultz, and said, um, I think I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's something you're going to write tomorrow.
6: Mendelssohn and animator Bill Melendez had to create an animated special in just six months. They made radical creative choices, like using child actors for the voices. Here's Peter Robbins, the voice of Charlie Brown. I was nine years old. They were eight years old, seven years old. We're all in one
0: recording studio, bouncing off the walls, playing with the drums and stuff, because it was
3: a recording studio where, like, the Doors recorded their albums.
6: The work progressed, but time was running out.
7: We did end up finishing it just like a week before it went on the air. Then we took it to CBS, and the three fellows there didn't like it at all, and they said, we're gonna have to run it because it's scheduled for four days from now, but you know, nice try, but it, it just doesn't work. So as we went through these minefields, it's amazing it ever even got on the air.
6: One issue that concerned everyone was Schultz's insistence that the show quote the Bible.
7: One of us said, you know, do you really think we can, you know, animate a kid reading from the Bible? Do you think we can get, get this through? And I remember he said at the time, well, if we don't do it, who will?
3: Who knows what Christmas is all
9: about? Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them.
7: Bill staged it in a very, very simple format.
9: For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord.
7: And the way that wonderful actor Chris Shea read it,
9: And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men.
7: It became, you know, one of the really indelible moments, probably in animated history.
9: That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown.
7: Then, in
6: 1983, author and humorist Gene Shepard immortalized his childhood in an autobiographical account of one boy's Christmas. Here's screenwriter of The Christmas Story and the voice of Ralphie as an adult, Gene Shepard, telling us about his real-life childhood encounter with Santa that inspired the most memorable scene in the movie. You know, I'd been thinking for weeks what
10: I wanted for Christmas. I figured the best thing to do is to tell Santa Claus about that. And I looked up at that Santa Claus, and had these big Watery blue eyes and a huge beard, and all that. He's looking at me right in the eye. And he was so impressive that my mind went blank.
7: morning, boy?
10: It's like if all of a sudden you're, you're sitting on the president's lap and he says, What would you like me to pass in legislation, Sonny? I mean, your mind's going to go blank. You can't remember any of this stuff. And so at that point, Santa Claus looked at me and he says, All right, (laughs) how about a football, kid?
2: How about a nice uh,
10: football? A football? I wanted a BB gun. (laughs) So he pushed me off his lap and this elf grabbed me and threw me down a slide that went down into the snow. And I played there for a minute and I knew but I was not a fit person to talk to the great. Santa Claus was obviously a star.
6: These days the glow from our holiday lights and television sets help banish the cold dark winter nights the way the yule logs and bonfires once did a thousand years ago.
4: People make up holidays. Traditions are invented. But there are uses for those cultural tropes that stay with us for centuries. There's something about the deeper meaning there that is singing to our bones. And we hear it and we think, yes, that's the tradition and that's what I want to celebrate.
6: For as long as we can remember, we bring in our greens and turn on the lights. We hang our stockings and sing our carols, in church and in the streets, amidst the chaos. We even find time to rejoice at the birth of a child, 2,000 years ago. Something touches America somewhere
10: down deep in his belly button about Christmas. He can't really explain what it is about Christmas that he enjoys so much. (laughs) He just knows that when all those red and green lights go up, you know, on the street and you see Santa Clauses walking around with their bells, there's something happens to you, you enjoy it. Now, you can be cynical all you want, but you still enjoy it.
6: From our family at Our American Stories, we'd like to say to you and yours, Merry Christmas to you all, and to all, a good night.
1: And this is Our American Stories, and again, that's all Greg Hengler, and all the folks he works with, putting these great pieces together. And by the way, one thing that really struck me through the piece, and I'm sure you had your favorite, but Irving Berlin was a Jewish man And he was from Russia. And this one man gave us two great American standards. A Russian wrote God Bless America and a Jew wrote White Christmas. And this truly is the most American thing about America. That I could say a sentence like that. We can only say something like that in this great country. And so we talk about Christmas. We talk about America here on Our American Stories. Have a blessed Christmas. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.